so welcome, folks, to the uh, Southwestern College podcast. This is Luke Cuddy, and I am here with uh, Edward Watts from uh, University of California at San Diego, and we're here to talk about a very interesting book that he's written on uh, the perhaps the most famous female philosopher of all time, Hypatia. Um, so welcome, Ed, and is there anything you want to uh, introduce yourself? Uh, do you want to introduce yourself, I should say? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm a, a Byzantine historian at UCSD, um, and what I tend to work on are things that, that get at the sort of intersection of religion and culture and identity and intellectual history, um, and the sort of way that philosophers interact in society is, a, I think, one of the best ways to get at those questions because ancient philosophers, probably more than just about anybody else in antiquity, give us the, the best accounts of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so you you really get a sense of the kinds of questions that mattered to them um, and the concepts around which they sort of shaped their responses to those questions. Uh, and, and this is, I think, what makes Hypatia probably one of the more interesting figures that we have in all of antiquity. Um, because with Hypatia, She's a philosopher who matters in the way that these other ancient philosophers matter, but her words are almost entirely lost to us. Uh, and the only things we have that were actually written by Hypatia don't really shed any light on her as an individual. Um, they're mathematical commentaries. And so the way that we get at Hypatia is through people who interacted with her or people who were in some way... Um, touched by the example that she set. And I, I think the biggest challenge we get with Hypatia is that the most notable thing that Hypatia is now remembered for is the fact that she was killed by a mob in 415 AD. Um, and this is, of course, something where she had no control over this happening. Um, obviously, it would not be how she would be chosen to be remembered. But very early on, I mean, within a decade, whatever Hypatia had accomplished in life was came to be seen through the lens of her death. And so the challenge that we have as historians and philosophers working with Hypatia is how do you get around this question of um, a figure who is incredibly significant in her life, but has for the last 1600 years been mainly known for how she died. Yeah, it's interesting how you cited a number of sources in the book who basically just used Hypatia's death to serve their own rhetorical or philosophical purposes. You know, the the Christians would use her as a way to say, see, paganism is gone, and she was a heathen, and, uh, and then the philosophers would use it to say, see, paganism was killed by the Christians, right? I mean, um, so it seems yeah. that everybody who wrote about her had another axe to grind. And it's true for 1,600 years. This is, I think, the, the real challenge we have as historians is it's, it happens immediately, but it happens forever also. Um, you know, you have 18th century French philosophers who are writing about Hypatia and 19th century sort of Italian poets who are writing about Hypatia and 20th century um, feminist theorists who are writing about Hypatia. And all of them have their Hypatia. Um, and all of their hypatias are shaped by the fact that she was murdered. Uh, so what I was trying to do in the book was to get at the question of, okay, so the murder obviously happened. It obviously is very significant in terms of framing her legacy. But how do we get at the person 
for, you know, the other 60 years of her life before she was murdered. You know, those moments when she did have control over what she was doing and um, was choosing the actions and activities that mattered to her. Uh, and that's, a, I think it's a, a challenge um, because for so long we've been used to seeing her as a kind of symbol. And it's, uh, I think, really important to get at the person who lived in behind and before that symbol took took root. Right, right. So maybe it would be a good idea to mention just for the listeners for a, a couple of the main sources that I, I know you mentioned. Uh, I think Senesius had a um, back and forth with her. There's a few other ways that we get some idea of what Hypatia's life might have been like. What are some of the top sources we have for that? So the um, only thing that Hypatia wrote were, well, Hypatia wrote a number of things, but the only material that survives is um, an addition of some mathematical works. And in that, what you see is, you know, not much more than she had a very elegant way of doing long division. <laughs> um, so that's all we have from her that has survived. We know that she wrote other things, but none of it is, is still uh, accessible. Um, the only other material written by somebody that interacts with her while she's alive uh, and didn't know and doesn't isn't reflecting the fact that she was murdered are the letters of Synesius that um, he wrote to Hypatia and um, we also have materials that those letters say Synesius sent to Hypatia so that she could help him assess whether they were worth publishing or not. Um, and so those are incredibly valuable because they don't seem to be tainted by this um, Hypatia, the symbol kind of afterlife that she has. Now, uh, interestingly, in, in those letters, just as an aside, um, isn't that where the source of the story where he asks her, he's sick or something, and he asks her to de uh, design a device? Um, yeah, so, um, so those letters are a very interesting document because what, what Synesius is doing there is setting himself up as a certain type of public intellectual. And so everything that's in those letters is in there because the collection is like advertisement for his status as a philosopher who lives in this remote part of Libya, but is connected to the leading intellectuals around the Mediterranean. Um, and so when he asks Hypatia for this device, he describes the device for her. And it's a measuring device that basically is a, I don't know, a very sort of precise um, thing for judging the weight of what seems to be medications, at least based on what he's saying. Um, but he describes the device so precisely that it's actually kind of an advertisement for how much he knows. Um, and what is probably likely is the letter that actually went to Hypatia just said, can you send me this device? Um, and then the published version has this long description of the device as well so that the reader knows that Synesius knows what the device is. He's not just asking, he, you know, he would build it himself if he could. Oh, that's interesting, that's interesting. And so what you have there is Synesius basically saying, Hypatia is so important that my, the sheer fact that I interact with her regularly makes me important. Uh, right, so it's a sort of a selfish uh, call <laughs> to his own expertise. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a way of establishing his own brand by saying, these are my friends. <laughs> right, right. Okay, interesting. Um, and so that's the main source we have. 
and the rest is just kind of somebody else wrote about her and we infer from that writing what whether it may have been true or to what degree it may have been true yeah the um the narratives that talk about her being murdered the first one is written in the 430s so she's killed in 415 the first source we have that survives that talks about it is in the 430s um and then sources like that pop up more in the the 430s and the 440s um in the 480s these are just what we have access to but it becomes a big um a big kind of incident that everybody talks about because it reflects on the conditions of the world at that time. The fact that you have this, this female philosopher who is, everyone agrees, um, virtuous and practices philosophy and, you know, doesn't, doesn't you know, do things that should cause her problems. The fact that she's killed um, is a sign of the kind of bad state of the world at that moment. Um, and this kind of way of approaching Hypatia continues for about 200 years. Um, and then she shows up sporadically in sources. And then there's a new interest in her um, starting in the late 17th century. Uh, and then she pretty much is sort of constantly popping up in culture, popular culture, um, for the next 300, 400 years. Yeah, that's interesting. And you mentioned in your book that based on Google search data, she's what fourth or fifth top uh, search. With, was it within for philosophers? I forgot what the parameters were, but yeah, for Greek philosophers, it's Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and Hypatia. <laughs> Man, that's that is fascinating. It really is. Um, I mean, I, I tr I'm trying to think of. I can't recall exactly when I heard about her, but I must have had a philosophy professor. She must have been mentioned in a textbook on, you know, one of the side pages or something. And, um, I, I don't even remember where I heard of her, but somehow she came to be uh, really well known to me, uh, just like many other people. Um, Okay, so anyways, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, the Alexandria that she was born into, because that kind of sets the stage for what you were referring to before about this interesting historical period where um, paganism was sort of on the decline, at least in by some accounts, and Christianity was on the rise. Again, I know that's sort of a simplistic heuristic to use there, but what was happening uh, in this time period in Alexandria that, that so, made this so unique? I think that... When we imagine Alexandria, um, my son actually is into playing Assassin's Creed, and he said that there's a, a sort of mock-up of ancient Alexandria, and you can like walk around in the city and see oh, it. I gotta, I gotta say, I played. I think he's talking about Assassin's Creed Origins. It's really cool. I've played it myself. <laughs> so, um, so it is that kind of. It's a city of maybe between 300 and 500,000 people. It's very small. And so like in the Assassin's Creed version, it's very dense. It's you know, People are living on top of each other. Um, it's also a very diverse place and a very dynamic place. So we know just from the materials that we have access to, there's a community of, there's a big Jewish community in the sort of east part of the city. Um, there is a big native Egyptian community in the southern part of the city. Um, there are Greek migrants from Asia Minor who are in the western part of the city. There's a lot of Greek-speaking Alexandrians, um, some of whom have been there for, you know, their families have been there for hundreds of years. Um, 
But the thing that is a kind of defining feature of Alexandria is it's incredibly cosmopolitan, incredibly diverse, and all of these people are living on top of each other. Uh, and the other aspect of the city is it is basically like the Cambridge, Massachusetts of the ancient world. It's the center of, it is a leading center and has been for 500 years of education, um, literature, philosophy. Uh, but the specific claim that Alexandria has is, yes, they do philosophy very well. They do science better. Um, and so Athens would be, in a sense, the, the sort of liberal arts college where you would go if you wanted to study philosophy or rhetoric. And in Alexandria, you could study philosophy and rhetoric, but the best people in Alexandria were the mathematicians and the philosophers. Uh, and so Hypatia is born in about 355. And Alexandria had been that type of place for almost 600 years. You know, the, the museum, um, the great library, uh, the sort of giants of Alexandrian mathematics and science, they had set the reputation for this place. And it really had maintained that reputation and maintained that status for centuries. Uh, and Hypatia is the daughter of the leading mathematician in the leading mathematical mathematical institution in the Mediterranean world. Um, and she's very smart. She's very bright. Um, but the world she's born into is not the world that she will die in. Um, it's the same city. But when she's born, it's a majority pagan city. Um, intellectual culture, the role that intellectual culture plays in the city is not really challenged. And the intellectual culture that matters in Alexandria in the 350s is math and science. Um, by the time Hypatia dies, the city is majority Christian. Um, the intellectual sort of trajectory of the city has also changed in large part because of Hypatia. Um, but now the city is a, a leading center for philosophy. Uh, and Hypatia's role is to basically facilitate that shift where Alexandria remains important if you wanted to learn medicine or science, it was still the place you would go. But Hypatia emphasized that philosophy is the sort of framework in which that kind of study is done. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You set up a, um, a sort of, there's sort of an elitist sense of people who came from Athens versus Alexandria. Like, you know, there were some people who sort of thought Athens was the place to be. But then I can't remember his name, but one of Hypatia's students goes there and kind of says, "No, these guys are all sophists. They're not. Uh, they're not the real philosophers like Hypatia." So there's this sort of, you know, uh, you know, Boston Red Sox versus New York Yankees type philosophy thing going on. It would almost be maybe like um, a Harvard versus MIT kind of thing. Ah, that makes sense. Um, you know, Athens is older. Athens. Um, has a real claim on a lot of the sort of intellectual genesis of the best things in Hellenic culture. Um, but, you know, if you actually wanted to build a steam engine, you wouldn't go to Athens, you go to Alexandria. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that the, the, the tension between Athens and Alexandria, there's, there's another aspect to that that is um, interesting to sort of get our minds around. Because when we think about the history of philosophy and especially the history of late Roman philosophy, we basically fall into, I guess I would say a trap that people in the fourth century laid for us, 
um, the story that's told to us is the story of the kind of golden chain that starts with Ammonius Sakas and goes through Plotinus and Porphyry and Iamblichus and then ultimately links up with the great Aristotelian <coughs> commentators and Neoplatonists who are working in Athens in the 5th and 6th centuries. So, you know, people like Proclus and Damasius. Um, but that's a story that those people created for us. And what's missing from that is the fact that Hypatia and the Alexandrians in the later fourth century, they were doing something different than the Athenians. Uh, and so when Synesius talks about the Athenians being sort of sophists without any sort of truth to what they're doing, what he's actually doing is talking about a Neamblican influenced teaching that has taken root in Athens that to him seems not particularly serious. You know, it doesn't seem like philosophy because it doesn't involve the sort of high-level contemplation of the divine. It's instead, you know, playing games with sacrifices. And it doesn't seem to him um, legitimately philosophical. And when you read the narratives of, of philosophy and the sort of trajectory of late ancient philosophy that we're, we're trained to sort of understand, Hypatia and this Alexandrian tradition, it's written out of it. Um, because the Athenians who wrote that history didn't consider it worth, they didn't consider it philosophy. Um, but if you'd ask Synesius, what is the history of philosophy and what is its trajectory, the Athenians would have been written out of it. Now, to him, they weren't philosophers. Um, and that's, I think, one of the other great things we get from focusing on Hypatia is we, we see that as late as the 390s and early 400s, there isn't just one story of philosophy. You know, there's still an Aristotelian first sort of synthetic philosophy that's going on in Constantinople where um, they're reading Plato, but they're also reading Epicureans and they're reading Stoics and they're using it all to understand Aristotle as the sort of highest level philosophical training. Now, where does, uh, where does the mathematics fit in here? Because that's a big theme in your book about how Hypatia sort of began with the... Um, sort of a focus, like many of, of her time would have done, she focused on this interplay between mathematics and philosophy, drawing from the Platonist tradition, but she ended up sort of believing, coming to believe that philosophy was the ultimate knowledge that needed to be, that it was sort of a higher level of achievement um, to understand the depths of philosophy rather than math, even though math was necessary. And I know there were people on the other side who thought, well, no, philosophy is sort of useless and math is what uh, you know, is the real thing. How does that play into this whole dynamic? Yeah, that's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic because in, um, in Alexandria, the idea that the mathematicians had is that philosophy is absolutely useful. Um, mathematics and philosophy participate, you know, they're part of a system of knowledge, but the highest knowledge comes from the precision that mathematics brings. Oh, right, right. Okay. Um, and so you had to know philosophy because philosophy made you better at understanding what mathematics really was um, and what mathematics really led to. And if you just sort of did mathematics to like learn about what two numbers added together equaled, you didn't understand what mathematics actually was. Um, and so philosophy was essential background to help you understand the sort of fullness of what mathematics did. Um, and for, say, a Platonist in, in, say, Athens in the year 400, mathematics does that same thing. You know, it, you need math because math is, in a sense, so 
precise that it gives you the t- the tools to understand something that is is higher level, you know, the forms and and philosophical truth. Um, but both mathematicians and philosophers agree that there's something valid in what each other is doing, and they both studied the same things. They just privileged different aspects of it. Um, so in Alexandria, the mathematicians read Plato, and you actually have some indications in like Pappas, who's a, a famous mathematician of the generation before Hypatia's father, um, where it's clear he knows Plato. He doesn't know it as well as, say, someone who's writing a commentary on Plato, but he knows it well enough that he can talk to somebody writing a commentary on Plato and basically make the case that, yes, okay, Plato is important, but math is more important. It's interesting that today that division between math and philosophy that back then was beginning or, you know, I'm not sure when you would place the start of today, it's almost completely disconnected yeah. um, to the to the point where I have students in my, you know, I teach symbolic logic and um, uh, I teach introduction to logic and we do symbolic logic and many students every semester have the comment when we study, you know, we study arguments like P, arrow, Q and turning language into symbols and a lot of comment a common comment is hey this is kind of like math <laughs> well, I thought this was philosophy <laughs> and it's kind of, and I you know I often well you know this is kind of when math and philosophy come together uh, but in you know for all intents and purposes if you ask anybody else in the academic world most people would see a very strong distinction between philosophy and math and yet they share these interesting historical roots that go back to Plato it's, it's really fascinating because I think we've been trained to see all these things as dramatically different. And um, I think a lot of the people in charge of universities now somehow believe that these, these disciplines are dramatically different. Um, but historically, they aren't different at all. You know, science and math and philosophy, they're part of the same package. And you couldn't do one without doing the others. Um, and we've we've sort of stepped away from that in a way that I think is detrimental to all of us. Um, the, there is a precision to mathematical thinking that is very useful for a philosopher or even a historian. Um, there is a sort of ethics and logic that is essential for someone doing science. And when you strip those things away, uh, you don't have the sort of full um, education in all of those aspects. I think you're not doing any of those aspects as well as you probably could be. Yeah. Yeah, I see a sort of unnecessary infighting there. I mean, we're all doing the same thing. You know, the historian sort of takes the critical faculty and of reason and focuses it on history, and the scientist focuses, you know, the physicist on the physical world, the sociologist on social, uh, you know, forces. And um, But at the, at the base, we're kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, and I think in the ancient context, you could certainly be a doctor, but the best doctors also knew Plato. And you could be a philosopher, but the best philosophers also knew Ptolemy. Um, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Okay, so um, let, let's go back to uh, Alexandria. And there's one other point I wanted to touch on, which is that you mentioned the sort of socioeconomic differences between the world Hypatia was in and the um, world of the folks who would eventually kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's going on there? I think you sort of described it in the way that you were, we're both from the San Diego area. 
um, the way that San Diego has many different communities with sort of different norms and um, socioeconomic statuses as well. Yeah, I think that's an important point that we often miss about ancient Alexandria. Um, the the primary marker of status in in especially late ancient Alexandria um, is whether you had any open space that you controlled. You know, so if you had a backyard with trees, that meant you were wealthy um, because the city is it's small and it's crowded. Um, most of it, the few images we have of this, we have some some ivories that give you a sort of view of the city. And most of the images we have show basically six and seven story skyscrapers of a sort. Um, the city is built vertically and it's very, very dense. And most Alexandrians live in that world where they are living on top of each other. Um, they don't have a lot of privacy. They don't have a lot of space. It's loud. It's smelly. It's, it's um, messy. Um, it's violent. And then there's the world Hypatia lives in, which is a world of townhouses, um, you know, courtyards, gardens, if you're particularly wealthy. Uh, and those two worlds didn't really mix with each other very much. Um, Hypatia would perhaps interact with less well-off people if they needed her to do something for them. Um, but for the most part, Hypatia's life didn't require her to spend much time with people who were not similarly wealthy and well-positioned. Yeah, you paint this interesting picture of, uh, you know, somebody like Hypatia going by in a carriage, going through the streets, and, you know, maybe the equivalent of today, what would be construction workers, just kind of looking on and not really caring, you know, with indifference as, as that member of the upper class goes by, and just to illustrate the vast different ways that they see the world. Yeah. And the other thing about Alexandria that is, um, I think, important for us to try to get our mind around uh, is that this is a, a city with a lot of migrant labor. Um, now, Alexandria doesn't, it's not close to the Nile, but in antiquity, it was the farthest west sort of outlet of the Nile into the Mediterranean. And so for that reason, Alexandria had two harbors. It had a harbor that was a Nile harbor, in essence, um, where all of the goods that were coming up from Egypt would be offloaded from Nile barges. And then it had a Mediterranean harbor where all of those goods coming from Egypt would then be loaded onto Mediterranean vessels and would go wherever they were directed, Rome or Constantinople or um, Syracuse or wherever it is that they needed to go. And there's a lot of workers who basically have to do that work. You know, they come up on the Nile barges as the, the, the winter harvest is beginning. Um, they stay in the city. They do the labor of offloading those barges and putting the, the grain in warehouses. And then when the Mediterranean is calm enough that you can start sailing it, they start doing work, loading these things into the Mediterranean barges. Um, but these are, again, migrant workers. They're like overwhelmingly male, maybe exclusively male. Um, they're living not in great conditions. They're getting paid based on when there's a job available. And it's a, a population that is, of course, young and volatile under certain conditions. Um, that's part of Alexandria, but it's not a part of Alexandria that Hypatia would have had anything to do with. Uh, from, you know, for all of her life, she spent probably no time at the, the Nile Harbor and probably very little time at the Mediterranean Harbor. That world wasn't her world. 
Um, but it's part of her city and it's, you know, easy walking distance to where her world was. Right. And it would eventually catch up with her, uh, in a negative way towards the end of her life. Yeah. Uh, okay. Interesting. So maybe we should talk a little bit about, um, her teaching. So Hypatia is born into this Alexandria where there's a, the socioeconomic, socioeconomic difference and she's of the upper class. Um, she is a woman, so as we'll talk about, she's going to face probably pretty severe discrimination sometimes. But at the same time, despite that, she becomes known as a brilliant philosopher to many other men who themselves are known to be brilliant. So that speaks volumes of her reputation. So how does she become the great philosopher that she became? Uh, I think that the story is a sort of combination of her incredible talent and the the fact that her father was, um, I guess, self-aware enough to recognize that, frankly, his daughter was more talented than him. Um, females, female children of intellectuals in late antiquity, they were and they tended to be well-educated. Um, the idea there was that many of the children of intellectuals who were male would basically go into the family business. And if the father, who is generally older than the mother, died before that training was complete, the mother needed to basically be able to superintend that training. Um, but there was also a real sense among these intellectuals that training in philosophy, training in mathematics, and training in, in grammar and rhetoric made you a better person. And there's no reason why a woman shouldn't be made a better person. Um, as long as the family could afford it, they would get the training that, that seemed reasonable. In Hypatia's case, though, she started learning from her father and immediately showed herself to be stunningly brilliant. Uh, and so he started her on the same curriculum that his male students followed. And what became very clear to him very quickly was not only was she better than the male students, but she was better than he was. Um, and in particular, her, her mathematical work, um, was quite good, but the philosophy that she was reading as Alexandrian mathematicians read philosophy, um, the philosophy that she was reading, she was understanding it in a way that her father didn't understand it. And, um, none of his contemporaries and his colleagues understood it. She just had a a knack for getting at what philosophy was saying and why it mattered in ways that far exceeded anything that they were doing. Um, and so her father, Theon, decided to retire early and give her the school. And when she took control of the school, what Hypatia seems to have realized is that her father and the mentors of her father and the tradition her father belonged to, in Hypatia's view, um, had mistakenly privileged mathematics over philosophy. And so Hypatia rebalanced things. Uh, she turned what had been a mathematical school in which you read Plato to better understand numbers into Platonic school in which numbers played a really significant part in helping you reach the higher truths of Platonic teaching. Um, and the amazing thing is it seems that she had already succeeded in doing this by the time she was 30. Uh, so she's quite young, um, and her father is actually quite young to be retiring. And I think that shows the the incredible potential that she has and the, the intellectual sort of 
power that she has. Um, and he must have had confidence in her, you know, to make that determination as well. I, I think it's clear that um, he had tremendous faith in her. I mean, he one of the stories that scholars have sort of told about this is, oh, he must have just died young. Um, but we have a letter from Synesius where he's writing to Hypatia. The letter is certainly after the year 400. And he says something about saying hello to Theon. And so it's clear that Theon is still around the school. You know, 15 years after he turns it over to Hypatia, he's still there. He's in his office or in his study, and he's doing what he's doing and writing his commentaries, but it's her school. Um, and that, I think, is remarkable. Definitely, definitely. Now, um, one of the things that she did, now we don't have to go into the depths here because I know both of us are kind of out of uh, practice with um, Platon, or uh, um, I should say, what's his name? Uh, is it Plotinus? Plotinus? Plotinus. Plotinus. Um, we're both out of touch with his philosophy, but just to kind of over give an overview, one of the things she was able to do, because she had many Christian students, she was able to sort of explain Plotinus's philosophy and connect it with the Trinity, because Plotinus had this idea of the soul and the intellect and the one, which, you know, in some way she was able to connect with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, in a way that made it so she could appeal to both sides of the two worlds that were fracturing, you know, both the pagan side and the Christian side. Yeah, this is, I think, a, a very interesting and a very sort of timely step. Um, what Plotinus basically, and what Plotinus and his disciple Porphyry basically sort of created was a system of um, like a hierarchy of, of being that started with the one, but there are different elements of this uh, and through a sort of practice of philosophy and a contemplative process, the true philosopher, the devotee, is at some moments able to, to move beyond the realm of their body and their soul can go into this divine realm and sort of unify or, or interact with these supreme principles. Um, and Plotinus was not a Christian. Um, Porphyry was most certainly not a Christian. He was actually... He authored a really significant work against the Christians. Um, but what Hypatia basically did was she taught this in a way that was non-confessional. And if you, you decontextualize the philosophy and you basically say there is a supreme divine principle and through prayer and through contemplation and through sort of meditation, you can bring your soul into union with it. Um, and you look at some of the ways that Plotinus and especially Porphyry sort of constructed this. If you don't say that's one God or a Christian God or a non-Christian God, um, it's possible to implement that practice and do it as a Christian. And what Ipatia, I think, realized is, look, I don't actually know what this God is. I'm, she's not a Christian. She would not, I think, if you pressed her, say, oh, well, this is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and this is the, the sort of way that it's organized, and this is what you're doing when you meditate and um, think and reflect and behave philosophically. Um, but she didn't say it wasn't either. And so her Christian students could say, well, yes, these principles are there. Um, this practice and this way of sort of behaving philosophically that Hypatia teaches is useful for me. Uh, and it's not pagan. 
You know, this principle that we're unifying with, well, Plotinus doesn't say it's a Christian trinity or a Christian hierarchy, but I think it is, and Hypatia would let them do that, in essence. Um, and what the reason that's important is because by the late 380s and early 390s, Alexandria has shifted, and it's not the majority Christian city, or majority pagan city that it was when she was a child. Uh, it's it's a majority Christian city now. And she needs to find a space for her philosophy in that city. Um, and I think that this, this way of focusing on purely contemplative ways of approaching the divine is really important. Um, because other philosophers at that moment, especially those who were associated with the Amlicus, uh, they felt the only way to approach the divine was actually through religious practice and through sacrifice. And obviously a Christian cannot do that. Um, and so Hypatia was offering, in essence, like the only way that you could pursue a kind of Platonist philosophy as a Christian and still be a Christian. I see. So she, ha she sort of had a degree of humility and maybe even ambiguity to what she was professing so that students could take what they needed from it in a way that that didn't, you know, make her lose any integrity, but at the same time allowed them to take what, yeah, yeah I guess just take what they needed for their beliefs. Um, yeah, I think that the, I think that the, the challenge we have is we don't know how she described this system. We know how Synesius received it, but we don't know how she described it. Um, there, one way to think about it is in the, the sort of conception that fourth century pagans had of what Christianity was. Um, the Emperor Julian is, of course, a philosopher. Um, he's also theolo theologically interested, uh, and he was brought up as a Christian. And when Julian converts to paganism, his ideas about Christianity are not that Jesus is not divine. And they're not that the God that Christians worship is not a God. Julian's objection is that Christians don't acknowledge any other gods. Right. But that doesn't mean that these aren't gods. And so I think a, a, a way to imagine what Hypatia might have said is, look, I, if you think Jesus is a god, then Jesus is a god. If you think that the Christian god is a god, then the Christian god is a god. And maybe it fits in this hierarchy. But that's, that's a question for philosophy to investigate. Um, and I think that that isn't like a deliberate ambiguity. It's, I don't think, a cynical approach to making your school marketable in these conditions. I think it's actually an intellectually honest way to present these things. Um, well, she may have herself thought that assigning too specific a label to, you know, the, the one or, um, you know, any of these things itself was uh, was problematic, you know, so she may have said, well, hey, if you want to call it that, go ahead. <laughs> Maybe it was sort of a um, you know, she realized that they were poking into metaphysical areas that are tough to pin down. Yeah, I, and I think that that's probably exactly, I think that's probably most likely how she responded to this. Um, you know, I, in saying, in essence, that's a question for investigation. Um, you know, that's a philosophical question to, to consider and investigate and see where you go. Uh, and if you look at the hymns that Synesius writes, some of them are explicitly Christian Trinitarian hymns, and some of them aren't. Um, and what historians, even 30 years ago, tended to do was to say, oh, he converted to Christianity in the middle. And the, 
uh, Christian hymns are later. And the other ones that don't mention Jesus, those are earlier. But it doesn't have to be that way. Um, the principles that he that he speaks about in the Christian hymns are perfectly consistent with Porphyrian views. Uh, and the views that he lays out and the ones that have been labeled pagan, they actually work fine for Christianity. Um, they just don't name the divine sort of entities that they're interacting with. Right. And I think that would be the, the world that Hypatia perfectly, was perfectly comfortable facilitating. Um, a world in which inquiry was possible and, and sort of fair consideration of how philosophical principles can be understood and considered uh, and, you know, and, de- and explored more deeply. Um, I think that was what she, what she hoped to create. Right, and that certainly would be consistent with all the other uh, beliefs about her as a great philosopher, because that's what a great philosopher would do, right? They wouldn't, so let's, let's investigate this, let's not, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you this is Jesus, or this is the Holy Spirit, let's think about this. Right. Um, so, so what about her, um, which of course leads to what I consider to be the coolest, I, maybe if I could say most badass story of Hypatia, <laughs> Um, the menstrual rag incident. What what about that and her uh, idea of philosophical love? How do, how does that play into her views? So this I think is um this I think is a story. Well, uh, the story is is really remarkable, and it actually is something that shows up in um, the movie Agora as well. Uh, the story is that Hypatia is of course incredibly charismatic, and she has a male student. Um, and the way that a philosopher has many male students and the way that philosophers interact with their students is it's very personally intimate. You know, there's a lot of kind of deep conversation and interaction um, on a one to one basis and in small groups and in private spaces. And um, one of her students falls in love with her. And what Hypatia does, uh, according to the story, is the, the first thing that Hypatia does to respond to this is she plays him music because this is a Pythagorean way of responding and sort of getting one back to rational principles. Uh, Because for Hypatia, physical love is not a rational thing. Hypatia is a lifelong virgin. She never marries. Um, She had apparently no inclination of marrying. Uh, And so her natural response is to respond as a teacher. You know, you okay, let's work through this. You know, this is obviously a problem and we need to work through this and let's do it using Pythagorean musical therapy. And that doesn't work. Um, And so then Hypatia takes a menstrual rag and gives it, shows it to him and says, this is what you love. And the student then, we're told, is corrected. Um, The the reason that story works, and parenthetically, I think this story actually comes from Hypatia. I think this is a useful story that Hypatia has um, sort of let out into the world because it illustrates a lot of things at once. Um, The philosophical principle is that for Hypatia, her circle of associates is uh, joined by a sort of philosophical love that is not bodily love. Um, And so there should be no sexual relationships between her and her students or her students and each other because that's bodily. And if that's what you're interested in doing, you're not behaving philosophically. You're behaving in a very sort of base and and physical way. You're not taking care of your soul. You're taking care of your body. And 
concern for your body takes your soul away from what it ought to be focusing on, which is philosophy. Um, and the menstrual rag is the, the sort of most base representation of bodily, um, you know, and it is designed to sort of emphasize to the student, this is what you're interested in is something physical and what's physical can be seen as repulsive. Um, and perhaps should repel you, but not just the rag. Everything physical should repel you. If you're a philosopher, anything physical should repel you in the way that you naturally respond with disgust to something physical that you know you've been trained to taught or um, encouraged to think is disgusting. And so the the larger sort of implication of that is well, everything physical is something that you should not focus on. And if you love me for what I am physically, that's a problem. But if you love me for what I am intellectually, on the level of the soul, then that's what we should be doing. But then you need to step back and consider how to actually love someone philosophically. Um, but I think the other thing that's interesting about this is Hypatia is, all of our sources agree, um, a virgin for her entire life. She never marries. She never has children. And philosophically, this is something that makes sense given her emphasis on this notion of divine love. Um, why would she have a relationship that's not consistent with that? What, what purpose would it serve for her as a philosopher to marry or to um, have relations with someone? Um, but of course, that in a society like Alexandria, where very few women are as influential as Hypatia, and very few women are as sort of publicly known as Hypatia, um, and very few women are as publicly known to be spending time in private spaces with small groups of young men, um, of course, people begin probably to whisper and question and um, wonder what is the nature of your relationship with all of these young men that you're spending time with. Uh, this story, I think, is designed to end those rumors. Uh, and this is why I think Hypatia probably, well, I think she probably did do this, but I think she also probably um, had no hesitancy in letting people know that she did this, uh, because it is, in a sense, um, something that defines her for what she was, you know, a philosopher who was philosophically inclined and framed her relationships around her philosophical interest and framed the community that, that she created in her school around philosophical principles of non-bodily association, non-bodily friendship, and um, non-bodily love. Uh, everything was grounded instead around the soul and philosophy. Yeah, we have to remember, as you point out, the the degree of criticism she probably faced, um, you know, from the whispers and the hallways and the, oh, the, what is this woman you know, doing, she's not married and, you know, uh, and she would have had to find some way to defend her herself, um, in a reasonable, uh, in a reasonable way, you know, that, th because she probably dealt with not just typical discrimination that would have been the typical sexism of the time, but also the fact that she was in this high position and was supposed to be a serious philosopher. And, uh, you know, some of the men might've thought, oh, why isn't she a wife, you know? And, um, so, so I can see why a story like that would have been useful uh, for her. Yeah. Um, 
if not, I mean, and I'm sure there's some truth to it. I, I, for me, I, I would have just liked her more <laughs> if I was if I was the student <laughs> and she did that. I would have said, "Wow, now I really like you," because <laughs> it's uh, such a badass thing to do. But um, yeah, I think that um, you know, I mean, you bring up a really good point that even in our sources that are favorable towards her, you have these these little jokes. You know, even authors that liked her. They say things like, oh, you know, isn't it funny that a, a woman is wearing a philosopher's robe? And, and they make little puns about it. And I think we have to imagine that if that's people who liked her, you know, people who are favorable towards her, still thought that that was something that you could do. Imagine people who didn't like her. Um, there is a, just a sort of, it's, I think, striking because the people who write about her are all men um, and the audiences that they're anticipating are not all men, but they don't know how to write for an audience that isn't. Um, so a, a great example of this, the, the, the author who makes fun of her for wearing a tree bone is, is Damasius, who is in, um, he's writing about her starting 70 years after she dies and he finishes writing about her maybe a hundred years after she dies. So he's writing between the four eighties and the five tens. Um, but the work in which he talks about her is actually dedicated to two women who are in Damasius's philosophical circle. And you just have to wonder, I mean, those women are probably wearing tree bones too. What do they think of that little joke? And did Damasius even, even think about that? You know, right. Did that even cross his mind? That it's not funny. <laughs> that they probably didn't appreciate it, and Hypatia certainly wouldn't have appreciated it. Um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Go ahead. Well, this this raises another interesting question because you, in a, I forgot which chapter it is later in the book, you contrast Hypatia with some other female philosophers of the time, who I think was it Sosipatra is that one. Yeah. Um, and they were not as, they did not seem to be as well respected. Uh, and um, in some cases they were, they were, you know, sort of sneered at in a way that Hypatia wasn't, at least in the sources. Um, so does that speak more to Hypatia's uniqueness uh, in that even among other female philosophers, she still rises to the top? Yeah, I think that that is a really, it, that's a really remarkable thing about Hypatia. It's, um, I think the, the average listener might imagine there aren't other female philosophers. I've heard of Hypatia. I haven't heard of others. She's, you know, a unicorn. Um, she is in a sense a unicorn, but not because there weren't other female philosophers. There were lots of other female philosophers. I think um, occasionally you'll have scholars who will put together articles counting them. And I think that they're, you know, are easily more than 70, and I think people have counted maybe more than 100 by now. They're not common. They're not as common as male philosophers, but they're not rare. But what's rare about what Hypatia is doing is um, other female philosophers, you see that there's a sort of limit to what they're doing. Um, in one case, the female philosopher is a mathematics teacher, but she's very clearly an anti-establishment mathematics teacher. This is in the, the age of Theon and Pappas. And she never actually breaks through where she's accepted as, you know, an establishment teacher. She's sort of an insurgent for her entire career. And more prominent male teachers attack her and insult her and embarrass her students and basically fight a sort of rear guard action to make sure that she never actually advances to the level where she's respected. 
Um, and on the basis of her mathematics, her mathematics is actually better than what they're doing. Um, so it's clear that this is on the basis of her being an outsider and being a woman. They're just holding her down. Um, other female teachers and philosophers, they would teach in association with a school run by a man, um, which meant that they taught and they taught male students, but they didn't admit the male students. They, in a sense, didn't sign the dissertation or um, grant the degree or anything, you know, official. They instead sort of were associated with the education of these men. Um, and these men do credit them as, you know, the, the people who taught the men important aspects of their philosophical practice. And Zosis Pacher is one of those figures um, where she's associated with a school run by a man. And all of the male students of that particular professor say, Zosis Pacher, yes, she taught us what we knew about the divine. She taught us what we knew about, about the gods and the highest levels of philosophy. But I'm not her student as much as I'm the student of this man. Uh, and so where Hypatia really is kind of a unicorn is she's accepted by the establishment and she's running her own school. And the people, you know, who graduate from that school are her students. They're her disciples. Um, and so you have there uh, a sort of combination of all of these other female philosophers. You know, the, the ones in the past who did have their own students, those students were not seen as appropriately trained by somebody who has the right credentials. Um, the ones who trained students who were seen as appropriately trained and possessing the right credentials, they didn't run the schools. And so Hypatia is both a sort of establishment teacher and in charge of her own school. And that is what makes her unique um, among female philosophers in that period. And that seems to be attested to by the fact that Cyril, who was, was he the, uh, the bishop of Alexandria? Yeah. Um, he took notice of her and ultimately, uh, although you argue that he didn't actually order her death, he ordered the mob to, you know, do something towards her, right? That ended in her death. Yeah. Hypatia's death is something that is, um, it's shocking because, Hypatia really wasn't deeply involved in the things that led up to her actually being killed, um, at least initially. Uh, what had happened was the um, Bishop of Alexandria, uh, a man named Theophilus, had been in charge of the city for a very long time, and, and he died after an illness that had basically left him incapacitated. And so that left rivals a little bit of time to kind of build power bases and once Theophilus actually died, Cyril and another rival they engaged in a few days of street fighting uh, that that's divided the city in ways that Cyril really struggled to overcome for the first few years that he was bishop. Um, and the, the fact that Cyril didn't immediately calm the city down, uh, this proved disconcerting to the Roman governor in charge of the city, a man named Orestes. And... Eventually, Cyril and Orestes come into a kind of conflict that Orestes uh, exacerbates by, in essence, sort of power playing Cyril, you know, refusing to compromise with him, refusing to meet with him, refusing uh, to come up with any kind of way where he can acknowledge that Cyril has some authority and Orestes also has authority. Orestes just simply wants to be acknowledged as being in charge. Um, and so this ends up 
turning violent. And there are a number of sort of moments where the violence breaks out. Uh, but as you get into the later part of the year 414, Orestes, in essence, decides that he's not going to be able to come to terms with Cyril and he's not going to be able to calm the situation down. Instead, what he needs to do is, in essence, undercut Cyril. Uh, and so he starts building relationships with people in the city who could potentially pose um, or create a rival power base that could challenge Cyril and get Cyril to, in essence, calm down and uh, just agree to what Orestes wants and, you know, to agree to. Uh, and because Hypatia is a, a philosopher, um, because Hypatia is a pagan, and because Hypatia is a woman, she looks like someone who is so far outside of the struggle between Orestes and Cyril that she might be able to create that, that alternative power structure. And so Orestes starts meeting regularly with Hypatia, um, and Cyril rightly begins to suspect that this is a challenge to him. Um, and what ends up happening is Cyril engages in the sorts of games that Alexandrian bishops would engage with. Um, those crowds of migrant workers and poor people in the city of Alexandria uh, depended in significant ways on the church for, you know, sometimes food, sometimes a little bit of money, sometimes a little bit of, of help if their kid is sick or they need new shoes for school or whatever. Um, and so they had connections to Cyril and if Cyril mobilized them to come out into the city and make a demonstration, this didn't necessarily need to be violent. The point for Cyril was showing the governor that Cyril was important and showing the governor that Cyril had supporters and that Cyril was powerful. Um, what happened to Hypatia was one of these mobs is, is brought together by supporters of Cyril. Um, it's not totally clear what they intended to do when they came together, but the goal was certainly to make a demonstration um, before Hypatia and ultimately, you know, communicate to Orestes that Cyril was important, um, that Cyril was powerful, and that they needed to sort of knock it off um, and stop challenging Cyril. And what we're told by our sources is this mob came out and most of the time when these mobs would do this kind of thing, and this happens in Alexandria, but it happens in Antioch, it happens in Rome, most of the time these mobs would come out and they would go before someone's house and they would scream and they would yell and they would um, be scary and you would get the message. Um, and then you would either tone it down or you would sort of risk something more serious happening. But most of the time, the people that were the targets of these mobs knew what was coming. And for whatever reason, um, the mob finds Hypatia and she's in the city and she's by herself or with very few attendants um, and she's publicly accessible and the mob goes crazy. Um, and what maybe started as them yelling and threatening her very quickly degenerated into them attacking her and killing her um, and uh, cutting her body apart and burning it in the center of the city. and doing things that are, you know, obviously incredibly alarming. It got pretty uh, gruesome pretty fast, it sounds like. Yeah, it, it lost control very quickly. Um, I, it's very rare for something like that to happen in a Roman city against somebody like Hypatia. And this is why everybody reacts so strongly to it. Um, the earliest author that writes about this, writes about the murder of Hypatia, 
in this um, little sort of tale of three cities segments of the sort of last part of his history of the church. <clears throat> and his goal is to say that the Bishop of Constantinople is a virtuous bishop and the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Alexandria are not virtuous bishops. And so he talks about how Constantinople is at peace and it is totally calm and it's thriving. And Rome gets sacked by Alaric in 410 and Hypatia is murdered in Alexandria. Now, if you ask a contemporary audience, which of those is worse? Everybody would immediately say, well, the sack of Rome, right? This is the first time in 800 years Rome is sacked. For this author, the sack of Rome is less serious than the murder of Hypatia. Um, because the sack of Rome is, in a sense, a one-off, right? Somebody sacked Rome. But the murder of Hypatia is a sort of rip in the whole way that the society functions. You have somebody who is behaving like a rational voice of reason who is murdered because she's doing that. And to this author, that is much more dangerous to society than a goth attacking the city of Rome. And now there's evidence that Christian and non-Christian alike were upset at Hypatia's murder. Is that yeah, this author is a Christian. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. And his reaction is, this is, this is really bad. Um, this is social breakdown. You know, there are no rules. Right, right. God, it's fascinating. Um, well, Ed, I appreciate your time. Maybe we should just end by, uh, maybe we can mention the movie Agora and sure. uh, just kind of talk about, um, you know, to what degree it's worth watching and to what degree it's historically accurate or not. <laughs> um, I, I enjoyed it, but that was before I learned about the, too much about the history. Um, so what do, you, what do you think about that movie? Um, I think that there's a couple of things that are very useful about it. Um, I think the way that it imagines the ancient city is actually pretty good. It's always a challenge when you have students uh, who are trying to imagine what you know, what ancient Alexandria looks like and what it would be like. And um, I think Agra actually does a decent job in giving you a sense of how the city kind of would have been. You know, it's grubby, it's messy, it's crowded. Um, and so I think it, it, it's quite good in that way. Um, I think one of the other things that's interesting about it is what you see there is this, this same tendency that you see across media um, and, and historians for centuries. Um, to sort of take the story of Hypatia and plug it into whatever the concerns of that moment are. Uh, and so you, you see in there the, the presentation of Hypatia. Well, of course, she can't be a philosopher because in the 21st century, philosophers are, you know, seen in popular culture as kind of useless, right? She has to do something valuable. So therefore, she's, you know, uh, she's determined that the world is round and, and that's valuable. And therefore... Her murder is, is much more serious than if she was just simply a philosopher. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so I think that what, what you see there, you know, is the same thing that has been happening with Hypatia for hundreds of years. This is a really significant figure. Um, what happens to her is dramatic and horrifying, and it must mean something. Um, and for hundreds of years, people have said, well, it means this, you know, and the 18th century, it means the victory of, of the church over rationalism. And in the 20th century, it, it is a sort of another instance of um, women being treated horribly by a society that, that devalues them. Um, and in the 21st century, it is, you know, religious fundamentalism and 
um, the undermining of, of what we imagine as sort of scientific progress. Um, but every generation almost has their own way of telling the story. Uh, and it always is something that tries to explain the horror in a way that's meaningful to that generation. Um, but, and I think what, I think what's important is it tells us about who we are, uh, and what the director of Agora imagined our world actually was like. Um, and so it's, it's a reflection on Acacia, but it's also, I think, a reflection on us, at least as how we imagine ourselves. Right, right. Um, and then didn't you mention, this, this just came to me, because uh, I know that in the, in the film, she's teaching in kind of one of those old classrooms from uh, Alexandria. And I think you mentioned in the book that those classrooms weren't actually built until after her death. Is that? Yeah, um, this is actually one of the most amazing, well, one of the most amazing archaeological findings, I think, in the last 30 years. Um, we've known for years that there are discussions of things that sound a whole lot like ancient universities with university campuses um, in antiquity. And we've never found one. Uh, and in the late, well, beginning in the 70s, but especially in the 90s and uh, early 2000s, um, archaeological work in Alexandria uncovered an ancient university. Uh, and there are 20 odd classrooms in this complex. They have hallways that have like a common sort of meeting area. There's a, a bathhouse and a latrine that is closed on the campus. Um, there are like student restaurants and things that are also sort of associated with this. Um, and it's so tempting to think this is where Hypatia taught, but the dating of that complex is all, you know, a generation after her. The earliest sort of evidence we have is mid fifth century when Hypatia dies in 415. So she could not have taught there, but um, if you have students who actually read, say, um, the philosopher Ammonius or the philosopher Damasius or the philosopher Simplicius, they all did actually teach there. Um, you can actually, you have in a text written by one of those philosophers in the 570s, he describes the classroom exactly as it is. We know for sure this is what he's talking about um, because he talks about the classroom as semicircular uh, so that everyone can see each other. And in the center is, is the professor sitting on a high chair. And that's what you have. You have semicircular classrooms with a sort of, you know, stone throne in the middle of it where everyone will look at. And so the exciting thing is we have an ancient university. You go to Alexandria, you can visit it. You can see what it would have been like to be a college student in the 480s or 510s or 550s. Um, but unfortunately, it's just after Hypatia. So it's not where she would have taught. So that's interesting. So if there were classrooms like that before that, either we just haven't found them, archaeologically speaking, or they didn't exist in the same form. Yeah, I think they did exist individually. Oh, okay. Um, but it wouldn't have been a university in, in quite this way. Um, but... It is, but these will give you a sense of what it would be like to be in Hypatia's school. You know, it would have been Hypatia sitting on a high chair, surrounded by sort of adoring students in a semicircle, all of them looking at each other and speaking to each other and interacting with each other in this um, intense and really personal environment. Um, 
And I think, you know, that, that explains the way that she structured her circle as well. You know, these people did know each other because there was no hiding from each other. Right. Right. Well, that's all fascinating. Um, thanks, Ed. I really appreciate you talking to me. Well, thanks for doing this. This was a lot of fun.